When you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. Hey, it's Simon. Mental health is, without doubt, one of the most significant adversities we have in our society today. Whether you suffer from, live with or know someone with a mental health condition, it can have a profound effect on your life. But what does it look like from the other side looking in? My guest in this episode is Dr. Niall Campbell, a consultant psychiatrist at the famous Priory Hospital in London. Niall has been helping and treating patients with mental health conditions for 30 years, from depression to anxiety disorders to addiction. He has treated thousands of people from all walks of life. In this episode of Turning the Tables, he shares with us his unique insight into the people and mindsets that surround mental health. We talk about the pressures that are contributing to the rise in numbers of people suffering, the common characteristics that can be seen with people who've mental health issues, and insights into how people recover and move on in their lives. We started our conversation by talking about how it was that Niall had got into psychiatry and what drove him to pursue that as a career. Welcome to Turning the Tables. Today I'm with Dr. Niall Campbell, who's the consultant psychiatrist at the Priory in Roehampton in London. He's lead consultant for addictions, specialist in treating depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety states, amongst many other conditions. You've been on TV, radio, and you've written extensively on the subject of mental health. So I was wondering, what motivated you to get into psychiatry? I trained as a doctor at Charing Cross Hospital Medical School um, a few years ago. And after qualification, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I would do surgery, but that's too um, difficult hours and lifestyle would be challenging and general practice. And while I was doing general practice training, I did six months psychiatry and it was the first job, having done other medical jobs, that you got time to speak to people. You know, so you got time to form a relationship with them and start to think about the problems and work it out. I had a very inspirational um, consultant at that time called Martin Cordero, who's from Chile. Um, very nice man, quite um, uh, rebellious in many ways, looked like Fidel Castro and he was a great influence. He had a great warmth, great energy, was very good with patience. And in many ways, um, I was emulating him. Um, I think it, the job has matched up to my expectations in terms of in this branch of medicine, you do get time to talk to people. Mm-hmm. I read that you said that the key skill to being a good psychiatrist is to be interested and really care about people. Well, yeah, you have to you have to kind of get into their shoes. I suppose you have to have a, a, a you have to have a certain empathy. You have to say, 
see it from their point of view, if you can walk a mile in their shoes and all that kind of thing. So whatever they do, and I mean, I've been doing this since for 32 years. <laughs> um, and I've met people from all walks of life. I mean, I was in the NHS until 2002 and various roles. Um, so I've seen people in all walks of life and even in my, my current job here at the, at the Priory since 2002, I meet people from all walks of life. It's not all celebrities. In fact, there's hardly any celebrities, obviously, statistically. So I people meet people that do all sorts of jobs from all around the world. And I'm quite amazed about who walks in the door next. And you meet all sorts of people that run mines in Brazil that uh, businesses in the Middle East that are strip mining gold in the Far East, um, Australians, all sorts of people, Japanese, Chinese, everything. It's absolutely fascinating. You meet people that do all sorts of jobs and all sorts of circumstances and, as we'll discuss later, often um, are subject to a lot of adversity. Yes, and I guess when they walk in to your room that they are united by a, a, a certain situation they found themselves in? Well, usually they'll have uh, had a, a, a crisis which has, has caused a, a problem. The first question I ask is sort of rather bland, from what's the, your problem from your perspective? Um, sometimes they may have been kind of coerced to come by someone else, but usually they'll, they'll have been a problem which will have caused them to develop depression or anxiety or an addiction problem. Not always, but often there will be something or a combination of, of events which have happened, uh, which, which have led them to have a crisis. People don't, will, will usually come when there's been a crisis. That it's, they usually don't come until it's too difficult to do something about it. As the listeners will know and... You're aware the podcast is about adversity, people facing that and coming through um, in a positive way. Um, but I guess today is slightly different in that I think you obviously have an in, a unique insight into one of the most significant adversities that I think we have in modern life, and that's depression and mental health. And I'm just interested to know... Over those 30 years, as you've said, you see many, many people come through the door. What is it that gets people to that point where they're in your office? Well, what, what gets them to that point is an inability to carry on the way they were had carried on before. I don't particularly like the word breakdown because it's a, it's a lay term, which is a bit hackneyed, but um, they're not able to continue functioning either in their job, uh, in their social life, um, and, or their general functioning from day to day because of the way they're feeling. They may not see it as depression. So thinking back to adversity, there may have been a trigger or triggers sometimes, unfortunately, people have several things happening at, at once. It may have been a physical illness. It may have been a relationship uh, or marriage difficulty, which has been going on for a long time. Or it may have been a work issue would be the commonest kind of things that we see or all three together, unfortunately, which may have been some of their doing and may have as an illness been something that, that, that just happened. And that's led to them to uh, become not able to 
do what they did before, become low in mood um, and develop a mental illness as well. So it's trying to unpick the causes. Is there a cause? Sometimes there's not always a cause. People become, if we're talking about depression, become become depressed for no apparent reason. Um, We're looking for causes. There may not be one. There's also, I might say, a danger, as most psychiatrists will tell you, of looking for a cause which isn't there. And people often have an idea, there must have been something happened in the past. The so-called golden key theory. If only we could find out what that thing was and identify that, everything would be okay. Well, of course, it doesn't really work like that. There may well have been trauma in the past, um, which may have contributed to it, but it's hardly ever as simple as that. So it's unpicking all those things. And then it's my, it was our responsibility as psychiatrists to, to pick that apart. And is there anything that can be done to, about specific causes? For example, if it's a physical illness, as doctors, okay, I'm not an expert in gynecology or gastroenterology or chest medicine. I'm thinking, ooh, that doesn't sound right. I think you should do something about that. You either need to go back to your GP or I could recommend a um, specialist in that particular area that you could go and see to get an opinion because I think that's what, what you're saying doesn't sound right and you need to do something about that. Frequently, I'm sending people off to back surgeons or, or neurologists or whatever. Slightly more difficult with relationships and marriages and also slightly difficult with work. But I see an endless stream subject of work of people in difficult jobs who are not coping uh, sometimes because of their own issues or sometimes because of clearly the management are unreasonable bullying um, and extremely difficult I see that every week and I have to say that that's become more of a tendency over the past few years somebody said to me famously a few years ago in my company and this is quite common You've either got two jobs or no job. So, you know, they're lumping, um, bundling work onto people, making them do as much as possible for the sake of, of profit. I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you might be forgiven if you listen to the sort of general rhetoric around how companies operate and, and management and things like that, that, that there has been a, a more enlightened view to people's working behaviours, flexible hours, things like that. But it sounds like on the ground, that isn't necessarily the case. I think that a lot of companies pay lip service to that. I think bigger companies are more able to afford to do that. Yeah. And more for, um, able to um, have uh, make allowances for people with mental health issues and to recognise it. But a lot of people who work in very small companies are just for one or two people. And that doesn't work. I met somebody yesterday who's a successful lawyer who works in a private business and he works for this very wealthy man who shouts and roars at people and calls them the C word several times a day and he gets away with it and uh, my guy has kind of had enough mm. but because you get drawn into a relationship with, uh, sort of in business with him it goes on, it perpetuates. And very often I see, I hesitate to use the word victims, but I see people that work for unreasonable people who are kind of trapped because if they say anything, they think they might be out the door. Mm. And p- 
people like that often get away with it because nobody's ever stood up to them. And I don't just mean people in business. I'm, I'm talking about academics, and I've met quite a few of them in my profession who were not very pleasant. Less so probably in the public sector because it's not so easy to get away with it. But in the private sector, you see a lot of that. And often that leads to people not being able to function. And often the other the other specialist that I refer people on to uh, is an employment lawyer to, to try to get stand up, simplistically stand up for the rights of this person who's often been bullied. I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating that your, that your position gives you that insight into what's going on in people's lives. I mean, do you think, if you think about the 30 years or so you've been doing this, do you think that there are more of those pressures? Do you think there are more of those causes for for people to have mental health issues? I suppose I would probably say yes. I think the economy gets tighter. I think businesses are much um, more stretched. I think that um, their managers are brought in these days that make money for the company by pushing people to their limits. I do see that again and mm. again. Of course, companies would deny that. And I've had personal experience of managers who've been like that. And if you look at their LinkedIn profile, you wouldn't think it's the same sort of person. <laughs> yeah. But I do see people being uh, under increasing pressure to work longer hours and deliver more, uh, which is extremely stressful, which does contribute to exhaustion, anxiety and, and depression. Mm. And unless people can change their circumstances, but it's not just easy, if I need to say, to walk out of one job into another, particularly in the, the current um, economic climate. No, I mean, I guess that that fear of loss of control, fear of financial um, problems is must keep a lot of people in. Yeah, indeed. But doing. getting back to the adversity point, it's acknowledging that this is a real adversity that they're facing. It's not just in their head. Mm. Actually, this is an unreasonable situation that they're in from a work perspective. And also, the slightly more delicate thing about relationships and marriage. Of course, you're generally only getting initially one side of the story, but quite clearly people live in extremely abusive relationships, men and women. Uh, just recently, um, I'm, I saw a man, he's um, very well off, nice man, um, he got divorced, he got into a relationship with a, a younger woman, it was okay for the first six months, and then she was incredibly emotionally abusive, exploitative, narcissistic, um, and critical, and he got into this very intelligent man, got into this codependent relationship where he thought she was right and the things that she was saying. And clearly it was it came out, this is not just an initial impression, this is after many months of therapy, it was clearly that she had been extremely abusive in an emotional way and manipulative. And he wasn't able to do it and he blamed himself. He was kind of out of his depth emotionally, but I think she was quite good at it. And it can help me all the way around, by the way. This is not just women, it's women and men can do this. I mean, that's interesting. You bring up that point of people's feeling of inadequacy or somehow or other that in these situations they are to blame. Do, do you think that is one of the root causes of why people find it difficult to deal with that? So that feeling of, of this used to call it learned helplessness. 
So it could be in Job, why are you doing that wrong? Why can't you do that better? This is hopeless, do that again. I mean, that sort of harks back to school a bit, doesn't it? Um, or in a relationship, you never say anything right. You're always saying the wrong thing, blah, blah, blah. So you, you get to learn whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you say is, is a bit of a cliche, is wrong. And you're often in a double bind situation that you cannot, whatever you do, get out of this. And so that, that is very depressing. It drags you down. It makes people very unhappy. Mm. And not everyone develops a depressive illness, but um, you can do. Um, as a separate issue, the mechanisms of that, you know, biologically are, are unclear. Is it to do with inflammation? Does it affect your um, the, the serotonin levels in your brain that we we, we like to believe in? Um, I'm not quite sure what the, the, the biological cause is, but it's very clear there is very often a cause and effect. Do you, when when you see people as you've seen, you must have seen thousands of people. Um, do you think there are any common characteristics for those people who find themselves in this this the situation they're in? Do you think there's any particular keys which which means some people can deal it, with this it, it difficulty would, while yeah, others it, don't? It would be a bit cliche to say because somebody had a difficult childhood, because they had abusive parents, because they were adopted and things didn't go well um, in their childhood. Therefore, they're difficult. I, I, I think we would say that people who develop depression, anxiety, and possibly addiction in later years, and and personality disorders, would be overrepresented at having difficult childhoods. But it's really not always the case, and it's something they can address in therapy. But it's getting back to my golden key um, uh, theory. It's not always the case. I've met lots of people who've had warm, loving, and supportive childhoods and parents who have ended up with depression and who'd ended up in adverse circumstances. I read, I think, an article recently, in fact, it was yesterday in the, in the Huffington Post, which said, stress and anxiety is not necessarily bad for you. It helps you build resilience. What's your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, that's a famous... Um, uh, psychological theory the, the people might be familiar with the Yerkes-Dodson curve whereby as, as anxiety and stress goes up that your um, performance goes up you need a little bit of stress and anxiety to be able to perform but once it gets to a certain level the, the curve drops off and your performance drops off because the stress and anxiety is too much um, yes you do need a bit of that but too much, and of course that varies person to person, is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And as a, as, a, as a separate, well, related issue, I suppose, I'm talking about the slightly more obscure biological aspects of, of um, stress causing mental health problems, usually anxiety and depression. The relationship between stress and cardiac problems, lung problems, blood pressure is slightly more clearly um, uh, documented. Cholesterol, all these physical illnesses, cancer, are made worse and sometimes one it might say caused by stress. The mechanisms are obscure. Why is that? But any physician will tell you 
that those conditions may be caused by stress or certainly made worse by them. Mm-hmm. So if patients come to see me that are have have got ongoing physical illnesses, it's it's my job to try and get their their anxiety, stress, and depression levels down. And by the way, I've, I've rattled on about as if it was me that was doing all this. Ninety five percent of my patients will go and see a therapist. Whatever's wrong with them. If it's depression, anxiety, and we haven't talked about yet addiction problems, they will see a therapist. That's one of my main jobs is to try and think of the many therapists I know, who would that person get on with? Might always not always work. But who who would they who would they click with and who can they develop a relationship where they can talk through things? which is a very powerful thing to be able to do. Mm. I mean, I guess the issue of of mental health has become more of a publicly recognised issue, and obviously the government are are now making this more of a priority. It's also true, isn't it, that now a lot of celebrities, if we can use that word, are coming out and talking about their mental health issues. Do you think there's a slight danger that somehow in its own peculiar way it sort of becomes cool? Oh, on, uh, on balance, no. I don't, I don't think it does. I think it does a lot to raise the profile of mental illness and addiction. If, if celebrities say, I had this pro- so-called celebrities, by the way, I use the term loosely, um, I've had this problem and I did something about it. Famously, um, Ruby Wax, who's associated with this mm-hmm. hospital, um, acknowledged her mental health issues and made jokes about it, but you know, did something about it and said that she did had medication therapy and it helped her. Uh, and others have done the same thing. It's so much better that public figures can acknowledge this I'm thinking of the other one was Alistair Campbell. He acknowledged TV. he had depression, wanted to do something about it. But if people say, mm, oh yeah, that they had a problem and they did something about it, maybe I can. Because to destigmatize mental illness is so important because people generally, privately, and I hear this even from other medical professionals, are still pretty disparaging about people with mental health issues and sometimes about psychiatrists. And as a separate issue, addiction, which is an increasing epidemic, I think, in this country, despite what the government says about people drinking less, I don't think we have ever any any evidence of that at all. And there's certainly a cocaine epidemic and a marijuana epidemic uh, at the minute, which is making people very extremely unwell. If celebrities come out and say, I had an addiction problem, I did something about it, I'm in recovery, it's very powerful. Much more so in America, where they're much more open, particularly to addiction. There's a female comedian was on the radio recently, and uh, she's in recovery. And she said if she goes to a gig in, in America and says, oh, hi, I'm in recovery, everybody goes, yeah, wait. If you say that in England, they say, what was she on about? Mm. I haven't got a clue. So making destigmatizing mental illness and destigmatizing addiction is terribly important. Celebrities who come come out, that's a funny way to put it, but will go into print or a media and say, Yeah, I had this problem, 
with depression, anxiety, addiction, obsessionality, and did something about it. I think they're very brave. I mean, they very easily do it about cancer mm. or other physical illness, yes. or I had a kidney transplant. What's the difference? So I don't think they're trying to be cool. I think on balance, it does assist people to say, yeah, I can do something about that myself. It, it strikes me that that acknowledgement of the issue must be one of the keys to actually getting people getting help and, and, it's, and, and it's getting through it. Recognising that this is a thing, that this is an actual condition, not just in your head some made-up thing in your own head. This is a condition and you can treat it. And that is a huge step. That insight, there's still what we learnt medical school, the clinical iceberg, there's more people out there with conditions than come forward for treatment, like the iceberg, you know, it's only a tenth of it above the water or whatever. Most people who have mental health issues don't, don't do anything about it and don't want to for a variety of reasons. Um, in the same way that many people who have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all that, don't want to do anything about it. They're in denial, so... And therefore, don't get th treat things that are perfectly treatable. Don't ever get treated. Do you, addiction obviously is slightly different from from depression, but do you see there are any different circumstances which lead people into addiction? Yeah, the causes of addiction are um, uh, many and various and controversial. I mean, clearly, some people have significant genetic loading. Alcoholic um, uh, parents and um, grandparents, or did they learn that behaviour? The way we look at addiction is to try and get people to understand the consequences of that addiction to their life, to their physical health, withdrawal symptoms, and and uh, in case of alcohol, feeling terrible and rough all the time, and affecting their liver, mental health issues, um, shame, guilt, depression. Um, the effect on their work health, they're late for work, not turning up, not performing well. Effect on their relationship health, the effect on financial health. Getting people to acknowledge those consequences and wanting to change. Unfortunately, what a lot of people do would say, because of my adversity, if you had a job like mine, a marriage like mine, a, um, a physical illness like I have, you drink You well. do the same, yes. Mm. And then... It's your job to try and gently persuade them that's the worst possible thing you could be doing to try and solve your adversity is to be, alcohol's a terrible uh, sleeping pill because it's very short acting and uh, uh, wears off and then you wake up and feel terrible, for example. Cocaine is a terrible antidepressant. Although people take it as a kind of short-term uh, solution. So getting people's heads round this is not the best way of trying to uh, cope with my adversity there are other ways to do this do you think that um the significant increase in cocaine usage in older people is to do with that issue of feeling greater stress and adversity in people's lives i'm not sure about that that's a good question I think it's a lot to do with availability. I think it's trendy. I think people see, in commas, famous people doing it. 
I think people are looking for a quick fix. Um, but the consequences of, of the actual physical effects of cocaine are pretty disastrous. I'm not sure from my experience that you know, cocaine addicts have, I've, I've seen are the most in the most adverse circumstances. I think it's a very addictive substance. And if you have a, a very addictive substance available, more people are, oh, well, I'll have a taste of that, yeah. And I saw those people on the telly doing it, well, I'll have a go at that as well. And it's so, it's so easy to get it. You know, it's, as I said before, it's easier than getting a pizza. <laughs> it really is. Um, it, um, the quality's not great, but it's relatively cheap. Do you think as hu human beings we are well, uh, well equipped to deal with the issues that we all now face in modern society? Oh, that's a bit of a philosophical question. No, I don't think so. I don't think um, everyone is. I don't think, getting back to my point about um, childhood, even if people come from apparently comfortable backgrounds, they may not have been taught or been able to learn coping strategies for the stressors in life. The educational system doesn't teach you to do that. The educational system teaches you to do um, what, uh, whatever subject it is you're, you're being taught to do. The uh, and, and the job you're in is teaching you to do the job you want to do. If you're fortunate to be in a relationship with somebody that helps you to deal with it, you are very fortunate. But and I'm not sure what <laughs> the next question is. What's the solution for that? Mm. Should um, should should uh, you're not allowed to be a parent until you've done parenting classes and you're able to instill in your children um, coping strategies <laughs> later in life? It's a very good question. I was going to say if you could. Wave a magic wand based on your you know, your experience and knowledge to to enable us to be as humans to be better at being able to cope. What what would you do? I suppose it would be to be <laughs> to have parents that were able to teach you how to cope with life and adversities and and to stand up to that in the future. Which, of course, begs the question, not, not everybody's personality wants to hear those things. I was going to say that because, I mean, my observation of parenting, having been one myself, obviously, is that actually it's all about achievement, it's about doing well, it's about succeeding in things, it's about everything being nice and happy and jolly and it seems a far cry from painting a picture that the reality of life is that things actually don't always go to plan. Yes, because, yeah, no, a lot, a lot of I hear this, I'm not sure this is overrepresented in the people I see. It's all about exam results and, uh, you know, what university you get into and or, you know, what um, secondary school you get into rather than how do you cope with those little relationship difficulties at school and with teachers, and then with people at university and people at work, and parents that are able to listen and advise and instill in their children ability to do that, or, or to teach empathy. Can you teach people to be yeah. empathetic? Question mark. Is that something you take on? Because you you see it around you if you if you see your parents and people in your family being nice and empathetic, um, are you going to learn to do that? 
Yes. People like that, because mm. obviously you don't get the best mm. out of them. Mm. So if you look at your experience of, of people who have had adversity, which has led them to mental health issues, what, what would be your insight about what are the characteristics of people who actually come through it and deal with it and come out the other side better, shall we say? The, the characteristics are recognising that you've got a problem and not just carrying on doing the same thing and hoping it gets better, which is, I can't remember who said that was addition of definition of madness, mm. which is not a word I like particularly, but, you know, you're not going to change things. So recognising you've got a problem, in my case, people that come to see in your mental health, and then we're looking for other things in your physical health or relationship health or you can change about that or employment health and then doing something about it. Very often people that we see will and I'm not this is not blowing my own trumpet, but this is talking about my colleagues as well, will be a huge sense of relief in the very first session if the doctor says, Yes, this is a genuine problem, it's whatever the label happens to be but this is something that you can do something about because our first responsibility, really, professional responsibility, is to instill hope and say, yes, there is something you can do about this. And it may not just be, as I said before, therapy, medication, inpatient treatment, patient treatment, whatever. It may be you need to go and see a a physical specialist, uh, consultant, doctor, you need to see an employment lawyer, you need to see a divorce lawyer just get to know where you stand you know, but it's recognising you've got a problem and wanting to do something about it and those are the people that do well unfortunately there are people that come to see me once and don't come back, it's not very often it's probably commoner in people that have addiction problems that are kind of there at gunpoint that don't recognise what they're doing no, I can carry on, it's not a problem. I can stop any time I like and all this sort of stuff. And then they and I suppose it's our job either if it's if it's a mental health problem and or addiction problem to sell them the idea, persuade them that they have an issue and they want to do something they, they need to do something about it. Usually the very because they've come here, they will do that. And so usually the job is done, but you know, and quite often it's our job to try and persuade people hey they've got a problem and need to do something about it and of the people who who get to that point of acceptance and they're obviously then talking with you and other colleagues is there anything that distinguishes those people that then go on and take the appropriate action to get better well um, medication is variable we'd admit that I mean, it's, it's, sometimes it's not tolerable because of side effects. Specifically talking about antidepressants, there's very few people that, that I've met in 30-odd years that you give them an antidepressant and they feel okay. We would say that it's, if people have significant problems, if medication agrees with them and it works, it's a combination of that and antidepressants and um, therapy, which is going to be helpful. So I... The, the characteristics, getting back to your question, are sometimes it's luck um, and uh, you are genetically programmed. Now I realise more and more 
to tolerate medication. It's to do with the enzymes in your liver and the way it affects your brain. If you're fortunate that medication agrees with you, and also a slightly more difficult point, if you have the kind of personality that can accept that therapy is about change, so it's about doing things differently, getting mm-hmm. back to my previous point, whatever this it's for, depression, anxiety, whatever. So there's a lot of factors at play. And also, um, getting back to the addiction thing, not drinking a bottle of wine every night. Mm. I think that that ability to, to actually recognise the problem and then take action in a positive way is actually harder than one might imagine. There's lots of cognitive processes which act against that. Absolutely, sometimes. and it also depends on if, if you're in a difficult relationship and not being supported and your significant other is not su- agreeing that you've got a problem and or um, uh, supporting you in the changes you're trying to make, that can be incredibly difficult. Mm. So really is a, a cocktail of... Of holistic circumstances, really. And, the, the other problem, of course, if, if people have jobs, well, they can't get away from them. They can't take time off. Mm. Then you can be a bit stuck. You have to mm. think a bit more creatively then. Mm. So if you stand back and we think about the general issue of the adversity that people often face in their in their lives, what what advice would you give to anybody out there, not necessarily with a mental health issue, but with... Facing some kind of adversity, a challenge in their life, what would your advice to them be in terms of coming through that? I think it's recognizing that adversity, that you're not bulletproof. As my dear old uh, departed dad used to say, you're not paid for killing yourself, that you can change things and you've got more power to stand up for yourself and make yourself healthy than you, than you think you can. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you that very much. Extremely interesting and insightful, and I'm sure people have got a lot out of that. So thank you very much, Dr. Campbell. Thank you. This was something of an unusual episode, as in this case, I was talking to the witness rather than the victim of adversity. But I hope you found the insights in this episode of value. As someone who has seen depression at close hand and suffered myself, it is strangely reassuring to understand that you're not alone. Accepting that this is a common condition of modern society is hugely important because as Dr. Campbell points out, acceptance is the most critical first step in recovery. Whether that's from depression, drug addiction or alcoholism, The increasing openness of people in the public eye to come out and talk about the condition is, I think, a significant step forward. But it really feels like now is the time for action. For employers, organisations and people themselves to realise that our always-on 24-hour living is no longer viable. We are not designed as human beings to live in this way. Kindness to oneself, the planet, and to others, as my previous guest, Felix Riley, pointed out, has to be the top of the agenda for living in the 21st century. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.